here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, there are just a few things I'd like to quickly mention. One, we have a new logo, which you might have noticed as you scrolled to find your favorite podcast's latest episode today. Or, you know, your third or fourth or fifth favorite podcast. We're not greedy that way. While we loved our toilet paper logo, it's something that I chose a year and a half ago, quite playfully, when I thought I was starting a podcast that only two or three of my friends would be listening to under duress. So we thought we would class it up a bit so that once we start with merchandising, you don't have to have a toilet roll on your t-shirt and caps. Thank you, Brendan Fisher, for designing us an awesome logo, which if you look at it carefully, you'll see our books stacked on top of each other. 
If you haven't seen the logo, head to our social media and you will see it there. Then thank you to all who attended our first ever virtual retreat. It was a huge success and we really appreciate all of your amazing support. And of course, we hope to do another one in the future. So look out for those details. Then if you'd like to submit to our Books with Hook segment, please go to my website, biancamaray.com. Look for the podcast page. The submission link is there. Please just read the instructions carefully before submitting so that you make sure you include the right format and all the information that we need. And then finally, we're very excited to be announcing a giveaway that we're doing along with Craft Better Books, who are giving away the prize of a world building audit. Now, what is a world building audit? It includes a 30 minute pre project consultation. A review of all of your current world building material, a world building audit letter offering praise, feedback, points of growth, a two hour consultation called to answer any questions you may have and do some joint constructive work on your growth points. This prize has a value of $375. Now the giveaway rules are you need to fill out the entry form with your name, email and genre. One entry is allowed per person. The winner will be drawn on Monday, the 28th of February. And Craft Better Books will contact the winner by the email given. Now, here's the link for you to go and enter that. It's www.craftbetterbooks.com forward slash world building giveaway. And there is a dash uh, or hyphen in between each of those words, world building giveaway. We'll also post the link on our socials and on the website. And if you're writing in speculative fiction or perhaps doing historical fiction or anything that requires a bit of world building, this is an absolutely amazing, amazing prize. So make sure that you enter for that. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hook segment. We've got four queries to get through today, so as usual, we're going to dive right in. Carly, why don't you get us started with the first query letter? Dear Carly, in Lakewood, Marie Cortland, maiden name Chen, is frequently gossiped about after her failed marriage with the town's former doctor. Plagued by her father's death from a decade ago, her mother's cold shoulder and her ex-husband's betrayal, Marie is too tired to put up a fight against malicious comments about the demise of her marriage. All she wants is to run her Airbnb, fish, paint, and watch the changing of the seasons in peace. But when Dr. Simon Lee moves to town, her comfortable routine is disrupted. Despite the strong mutual attraction, Marie is determined to stay out of love. She is terrified that his History will repeat itself. Despite her best wishes, they're brought even closer together when a bad storm collapses the roof of his apartment and he has nowhere to go but Marie's Airbnb. In his calm, loving presence, Marie questions why she has allowed isolation to eat away at her. She starts to reconnect with family and her Chinese heritage and make new friends and find joy in having a support network again. Just as she thinks a new chapter of her life is beginning, things that have plagued her, her mother, her ex-husband, her secret abortion, come knocking on her door. Marie must choose between peace and fighting for what she wants, or she might lose her one chance at a genuine connection that she has always craved. Marie Rewrites the Tale is an 80,000-word upmarket women's fiction novel. It will appeal to fans of The City Baker's Guide to Country Living by Louise Miller and Writers and Lovers by Lily King. I'm a Chinese-Canadian immigrant with a master's degree in journalism and communication, and I have experience working as a reporter for Canada's public broadcasting corporation, CBC News. My writing has also been published by this magazine. Thank you for your interest and consideration. Sincerely, Flora Pan. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. What was your take on that query letter? 
So whenever we, I have two women's fiction queers to talk about today. So we'll probably cover a little bit of the same ground, but there's a lot of layers to it because we kind of have to address women's fiction as a category and what is working, you know, and what isn't in those categories. So our opening paragraph, we have a lot of conflict happening with, you know, the death and the cold shoulder and the betrayal, but I'm not really clear on what the book centers on. We have a lot of layers of drama and trauma from her mother and her ex-husband and things like that. So, you know, I'm trying to figure out exactly what the specific conflict is of the book. You know, women's fiction has a tendency to layer on a lot of trauma and drama to create this tension around a category, which is actually really built in an internal conflict, right? And so I think the author is trying to create external conflict by layering on all these things, but I actually don't know what the inciting incident is, you know, and I don't know what our main conflict is. The other thing is that I'm trying to figure out the balance of, is this a romance novel, you know, or or how heavy is the romance plot built into this? Because I do think this is upmarket women's fiction if we're covering all of these larger issues, but we need to center it more on the crisis and the conflict and less kind of on the romance, because ultimately that's what separates women's fiction from romance, right? Romance puts the romance plot first, women's fiction puts the women's journey first. And so when we're opening this plot paragraph, with romance, I just think we're kind of confusing the reader maybe on what exactly the conflict is. So when we do get to the conflict, we say, just as she thinks a new chapter of her life is beginning, things that have plagued her. So we have the mother, ex-husband, secret abortion come knocking at her door. So this is a lot, but it's also really vague at the same time because we don't actually know how this is going to kind of crash into her life at this moment. And then it says, or she might lose her one chance at a genuine connection that she's always craved. And that kind of creates really low stakes for me because the stakes are built around her one connection that she's always craved. And so So again, this kind of comes back to romance for me, because how are the stakes women's fiction stakes? And this is why I think this is a a larger conversation about what women's fiction is as a category. I'm not wild about this title. Title is Marie rewrites the tale. You know, the tale of what? (laughs) Like, what are we rewriting? You know, is she an author? Because at the beginning of the query, it says she wants to fish and paint. So I'm not really understanding where the rewrites the tale business is, is kind of included here. But I think the author bio paragraph is great. But I think this this query really leads to a larger conversation about what is women's fiction, which I think is a really interesting conversation because it's always changing, it's always evolving. And a lot of it depends on how the reader receives it and, and you know who decides what is women's fiction. And so I think we just kind of have to figure out what are the stakes and how romance heavy is this? And, and it kind of changes the positioning a little bit for me. So yeah, so that's my take. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Very, very interesting discussion. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that? I'll share a quick story of how one day I tweeted, how would you define women's fiction? And got hundreds of answers. And some very lovely men answered, you know, stories surrounding women's journeys and their problems. And I lied to them saying, so what would you call stories surrounding men's problems? And all of them were like, oh my gosh, you just blew my mind. I never thought about that. So it was it was quite interesting to see that. And I also wanted to say shout out to this magazine. It's a great magazine. I'm a subscriber and I encourage everyone to take a look at it. It's really wonderful. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Carly, could you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages and then give us a breakdown of your take on them? 
I actually prepared a little write-up today. Here we go. Marie rewrites the tale. So the opening pages are about a woman named Marie who is drinking coffee very slowly, enjoying her quiet home in the country when the phone rings. A man is on the phone, asks for a room in her B&B, which we find out she actually closed down a few years ago because, you know, she ran it with her ex-husband. However, she does occasionally operate it as an Airbnb. So she kind of downgraded the uh, hands-on attention. And then we kind of see how she's missing her ex and and sees him everywhere in town and there's some beautiful lines about her missing him. So that's kind of our opening pages here. So as my little description mentions, you know, we're opening with somebody drinking coffee. It's a very slow start. I find the entire first page quite passive because we're focusing on really mundane things. You know, she's talking about the time that she's drinking her coffee and the book that she's reading. Extremely, extremely passive. Somewhat picturesque, but mostly quite passive. So I suggest we start the book if we are going to start in this kind of scene we start in the about fifth paragraph, starting with every day was the same. And for Marie Jade Cortland, that was a blessing. I think that's the opening line. I would kind of cut the having the coffee in that quiet moment. So on the next page, you know, she has her phone ringing and we're kind of learning that she doesn't really want to run this Airbnb or B&B situation. But I kind of feel like we're not learning enough about her because we have this, again, this very passive opening and then the phone's ringing. It's not really about her. And so I actually don't feel like, number one, I know her very well. And number two, and this is another kind of layer of women's fiction, her unlikability is coming on really strong here. And so for women's fiction, it's always a bit of a gamble. Like I don't mind unlikable characters by any means, but you just have to know that this is a gamble because not all readers of women's fiction necessarily like unlikable characters. So it's just something to know, I think is is really important that, you know, not only do we have a pretty passive character, she is coming off relatively unlikable. So it's just something to know about your book and, and you might know that already and that's fine. And now we kind of start into some, there's some really beautiful lines here about exploring the the Airbnb situation and and how she feels about it. And she says, yes, you're welcome to join us. How many nights are you thinking? She shook her head, cursing herself for using the word us, even though there hadn't been an us for two years. I thought that was a really nice and subtle way of kind of suggesting about how long the breakup had been. And the author has some beautiful lines here. Every inch of Lakewood was covered in Mark. If the town was a beautiful brick building from the last century, then Mark was the vines of ivy that crawled on its surfaces and crevices unrelenting. I just thought, you know, there were some really beautiful lines there. So I really, really enjoyed that. And then the kind of end of the submission is a bit of a jolt. So our our character is kind of doing some shopping. She's in a store and we find out that the ex of our main character was the doctor and the person who was going to stay in the Airbnb is the new doctor. And then somebody in the store says, don't run him off this time like you did the last one. And our character just lets that roll off her back. And I'm like, that is so rude. Like, we don't know if this is sarcasm, but somehow this character lets this go. I just have some, you know, some questions about if she really is passive and and what our level of likability is supposed to be and how much we're leaning into that likability or unlikability, I guess. So that's another kind of women's fiction conversation. But overall, I do think this is a really interesting premise. I just really want to focus on the external and a little bit less on the internal. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Cece, did you have anything to add to that? I'll say that Carly read some beautiful lines and the writer here did a really good job with the writing on the line level, I thought. 
you know, a very quick tip for our listeners includes, she mentions how the cold coffee lowered her body temperature even more on the chilly autumn day. And then she talks about how the wind was passing through the house and you're doing two things at once. And not only is that more efficient, but it also paints a picture because a lot of authors, they separate this, right? Like they, they talk about how the coffee is cold and how the day is cold and how the house is this. And when you put it all together, it's much more sophisticated and it flows really nicely. So good job. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Will you read us your query letter? Let's do this. Dear Ms. Lira, I am seeking representation for my 80,000 word novel, True Crime Ted, a work of contemporary fiction exploring identity, anthropomorphism, and the rapidly evolving relationship between people and their pets. Comparable titles include Lily and the Octopus, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, and Nothing to See Here. For a little dog, Teddy Miles has a lot of big theories. Waned on a lifestyle of puppuccinos, cashmere sweaters, and other bougie delights, this mini golden doodle isn't just dapper, he's also deluded himself into thinking that he's a human. Not only that, Teddy also believes his owner Maggie is his girlfriend, and that all canines and humans are one in the same space. But when a suspicious man named Charlie starts cozying up to Maggie, and then Maggie mysteriously vanishes, Teddy's tenuous grip on reality gets put to the test. Convinced that Charlie is responsible for Maggie's disappearance, Teddy starts sniffing around for dirt that will expose his two-legged rival for the smooth operator he is. Only instead of finding dirt, Teddy unlocks a whole new world of ideas that challenge everything he's ever known about his own pampered existence, from his Instagram account and designer snow booties to his inexplicable need to chase birds. Determined to reject any clue that undermines his human identity, while at the same time uncover the truth about Maggie's whereabouts, Teddy stumbles deeper into a web of confusion and conspiracy until he's certain that the only path out is one of murder. As a passionate dog owner who's worked for several global pet brands, I am deeply fascinated by the rising trend in overindulged fur babies, doting pet parents, and the evolution of pet humanization in general, told primarily from Teddy's POV with some epistolary narration from the book's human characters, True Crime Ted shines a light on these modern phenomena with warmth, satire, and the irresistible insights of a confused little dog. I am an Australian advertising copywriter with publication credits in McSweeney's, The Rumpus, and The Belladonna Comedy. When I'm not fanning out on your podcast, I can be found chipping away at my second manuscript. Thank you for taking the time to review my submission and for all that you, Carly, and Bianca do for the Emerging Writers community. If it wasn't for this podcast, I probably would have thrown in the towel already. Warmest regards, author's name withheld. Great. Okay, Cece, what was your take on that? Really well-written query letter. First paragraph gives me title, word count, genre, and comps. What the first paragraph doesn't do is tell me the hook. And the hook here is really cool. It's a pet detective that's a pet. Like, that's just interesting. So instead of writing the line, exploring identity, rapidly evolving relationship, blah, 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 delete that and insert the hook. We don't really want, like, this is something Carly talks about all the time, and I very much agree. Like, we don't want to hear the themes of your novel because themes don't sell novels. Hooks sell novels. And you have a really cool hook. So I really liked this. I understood the journey. I understood the motivation. I understood the inciting incident, the plot escalation. When we got to the climax, I was like, I thought it came out of left field a little bit, the murder, because it didn't feel like a murder story. But I am intrigued. 
So this is one of those situations where, okay, it doesn't match the rest, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like if you can make it match the rest even more, the murder bit, great. But if you can't, I think it's fine. I would just keep on reading because I'm curious. I think that stories told from the point of view of non-human life forms is a challenge, but it's a challenge that I am interested in. So I thought that was, you know, it's something that you need to be mindful of. I'm curious. I'm definitely curious. I also love satire. So I would actually bring up the satire element to the first paragraph because I love satire. And yeah, and I, I love that you shared a little bit about your dog, even though I deleted that line. What am I doing? And yeah, this is a great query letter. Thanks, Cece. This actually brings to mind a book that came out this week called Shady Hollow by Juno Black. And I'll just read a slight description on it. The first book in the Shady Hollow series in which we are introduced to the village of Shady Hollow, a place where woodland creatures live together in harmony until a curmudgeonly toad turns up dead and the local reporter has to solve the case. And I think the reporter's a fox. So that's pretty interesting as well. Carly, did you have a take on the query letter? No, I just wanted to read the omitted line. I have it handy if you want me to read it for you. So the line was, I can be found chipping yes, away please, at my second... Yes, I deleted it when I wanted to highlight it. <laughs> I can be found chipping away at my second manuscript with my embarrassingly high-maintenance poodle mix by my side. And I highlighted that and I wrote baby, which is what I always do when someone mentions their fur baby. And of course, that led to technological problems. I am sorry. Awesome, Carly. Thanks for that. Okay, Cece, what was in those opening pages and give us your take on it? So the story begins with Teddy, remember Teddy's a dog, observing Maggie. Maggie's having red wine on the balcony. She wonders why the Empire State Building is green, which is confusing to Teddy because he's like, it's yellow. And that's funny because we all know about dogs and seeing colors. They're hanging out when they hear a voice calling out to Maggie, a voice which Teddy dreads. For a moment, he hopes it's just like a delivery person or some other two-legger. But no, it's Charlie and Teddy does not like Charlie. When Charlie walks in and hugs Maggie, Teddy protests and Maggie tells him to stop barking. So that's essentially like the plot. I really like this. I think this is very well written. It's polished. It's very, very strong. I do have notes, but I want to, you know, applaud the writer because he did a really good job here. So one of my notes is, you know, you spend a couple of paragraphs talking about how Teddy is observing Maggie, but Maggie doesn't know she's being observed. And there's a lot on that for in terms of first page real estate. Having read the whole five pages, there's nothing to it. It's not a situation where he was observing Maggie and because he was observing Maggie and she didn't know she was being observed, something came out of this. It's completely unrelated to everything that happens later. So I don't think this is what you should be spending your first two paragraphs on. It's not like he saw her doing something secretive or whatever. So just, just skip that, I think. The writing is super quirky and fun. However, this is told in the first person. I don't think the first person is the right POV here. There's something about non-human POVs that work especially well in the third person. I think the I point of view, like the first person, requires so much awareness. And since so much of the story hinges on the fact that Teddy is not aware that he's not a human and not aware that Maggie is not his girlfriend, then I think it might just really help to lean into the his unconscious, right? Like the stuff that's going on that he has no idea about. And the third person comes in handy when we're doing that. I also think that there's a lot more opportunity for humor that the author is not taking advantage of. It's stuff like, for example, she stepped onto the balcony with a glass of wine, right? And he didn't talk about how he never had wine. He would never partake because, I don't know, for some reason he doesn't like wine or whatever. Like one day he tried. So I just think that there's more opportunity for commentary and humor and insight. Because if you are going to go down the satire route, 
just we need more, more of this. And I did highlight a few sections where I was like, this is great, but more of this. And I just want to say that this is a really great compliment, right? Whenever you say, I want more of something, that's something I tell all my clients when I'm reviewing their manuscripts. It's usually the one editorial note that is is the common denominator between all of my clients. I always go, more of this, please. So excellent, really excellent. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I just wanted to say I watch a lot of anthropomorphic things because I have children. And so I'm always watching animals and and other things acting like humans. So so yeah, I I definitely agree with Cece. I think we need subtle ways to explain why the animal knows the things they know in a really subtle way. And, And I think that would help elevate it a little bit. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, why don't you read us your second query letter, Carly? Dear Carly and Cece, I'm seeking representation for Almost Sage, my upmarket women's novel, complete at 80,000 words. It's a standalone with series potential. The only story quirky Vancouver biographer Sage O'Hara can't tell is her own. Her unusual ability to see voices and taste words is one of her best-kept secrets. She also hides her addiction to the dulls, anti-anxiety medication that suppress her, quote, hallucinations, end quote, and the truth about her past. Now 50, Sage can't keep ignoring her escalating health problems, faking her way through relationships, and feeling like a hypocrite. Escape is her only option. Sage is leaving her writing business to a reluctant partner and pursuing her lifelong dream of driving across Canada in her VW camper van. She is determined to wean herself off the dulls and start a new life in Newfoundland. But first, one last job. Charming, elderly, Trixie Wiley asks for help writing the history of her hobby farm in Saskatchewan and then makes an offer Sage can't refuse. On the road, Sage discovers Trixie's real reason for hiring her. Not only does Trixie confess her guilty association with Sage's mother, she leaves an inheritance that disrupts Sage's plans and reshapes her future. I'm the author of Growing Forward When You Can't Go Back, Bethany House, 2019, and have written professionally since 2008 for publications such as Reader's Digest, Chatelaine, and more. My inspiration for writing Almost Sage is rooted in my mother's struggles with schizophrenia, which has been linked to synesthesia, the condition that causes Sage to see, voices, taste words, and feel sounds. I have a master's of social work and an undergrad degree in psychology and education. While my home base is Vancouver, my favorite place to live and write is on the road in Ruby, my little red camper van. As requested, the first five pages of Almost Sage are below. Thank you. I appreciate your time and feedback. Sincerely, Lori Pollock. Awesome. Carly, thank you. What was your take on that? Okay, so starting at the top, I don't mind the title. I think the title works. What I'm kind of stumbling on here is the idea that this is a standalone with series potential. Because number one, we're missing our comps. So I don't necessarily know what we're comping here. And the other thing is, I don't know really any upmarket women's fiction series. So does this even really exist as a category? I mean, I have seen some women's fiction authors who kind of link their books together with some overlapping characters in a very kind of wink, wink way that avid readers would get. But I don't really, I can't even think off the top of my head necessarily of any upmarket women's fiction series. So I'm kind of just stumbling a bit on the market sensibility because I'm just not really clear on where this person maybe sees their book fitting. That's my number one note on the on the high level thing here. So the next thing, I love a 50-year-old protagonist. Love, love, love. I think we need a lot more of protagonists in that age category. I think that's great. My next question is, again, coming back to the women's fiction themes here. So we're 
really seems like the plot is about is that she's escaping herself, right? And so it's very internal to be running away from your own demons. And because I'm not really seeing what our inciting incident is, you know, what's happening, what's the plot. Again, this is all very internal. It's not that it's uninteresting. It's just that it's very internal. And that just makes it difficult for it to be a page turner when it's when it's very internal here. Because I'm not sure necessarily what specifically is making her take off based on this query letter. It's all very passive. You know, she's just leaving her writing business to her partner. You know, what are the stakes of leaving a business behind? What are the, you know, what are the stakes here? I'm just not really seeing planted very clearly. It is still vague towards the end, but we're getting much better in terms of plot happening. You know, an offer she can't refuse. That's great, right? That's stakes. And that's kind of the first mention of stakes that I'm seeing in this query letter. So I think I would, I would suggest kind of leaning into that and, and trying to make that really clear for us. I loved that there was a mention of almost sage rooted in my mother's struggles with schizophrenia, which has been linked to synesthesia. I love that personal connection. Obviously, that helps us, you know, ground this in a bit of personal history, which I think is always good. So overall, I think this is interesting. I just I'm worried that this is coming off too internal and we don't really know where our stakes are. And it's just again really common with women's fiction queries. So less about feelings and more about plot. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. So what was in those opening pages? So in Almost Sage, our pages are about a 50-year-old woman. She is outdoorsy. She's with her partner. They're getting set up to go kayaking and stand up paddleboarding. And we find out, number one, we see the kind of synesthesia that she's, you know, hearing colors and seeing words and all of this sort of thing. But she wants to propose to her partner. But she's not sure what he's going to say. So that's a nice little hook there. And we also find out about her pill addiction. And that's kind of woven in as well. So that's where we're at. We're outdoors with this woman and her partner. Okay. And what was your take on those opening pages? So I really liked this opening page. So it takes a really talented author to be able to open with dialogue and also learn a lot about our characters while we're in dialogue. I think they do a really good job here. So the male character saying, almost sage, just one more push, you know, and when you open a women's fiction novel with push, you, I mean, I think everybody's mind jumps to somebody giving birth, but I love that we kind of right away learn they're trying to get the kayak off the roof of the SUV. So I think that's just adorable and really fun, playful and really smart right? Because it keeps us on our toes. So I think this person did an amazing job really just twisting our expectations. And I thought that was really well done. Pretty quickly, which I think is a good thing, we find out about the synesthesia and the pill addiction. I think, you know, explaining that to the reader quickly was helpful. I was wary, you know, that it might feel like an info dump, but it's kind of information we need to know because the main character is narrating the fact that they're tasting colors and and seeing words and things like that. And that could come off as like a fantasy novel, right? So, So I thought that was really well done. Overall, though, we're spending way too much time internally thinking about the proposal and not doing the proposal. (laughs) I think we really just need to hop to it because there's a lot of tension there, right? I think there needs to be a quick will they or won't they, and then we do the proposal, and then we find out what happens. Like, you know, we're five pages in, and she's still humming and hawing about the ring in her pocket. She's kind of daydreaming. He's kind of saying like, hey, snap to it. Like, where are you? Right? And we're just taking in the surrounding. So my main note is get to the proposal quicker. But overall, I think it's pretty strong and surprising and interesting. So those are kind of my main notes. I don't know if the query properly reflects the strength of the pages. So I'll just do kind of a rewrite probably on the query based on the strength of the pages. Thanks, Carly. And you know, that's one of the instances where it's fine for a writer to tell instead of showing. You know, if you want to tell the reader that the character has been humming and hawing 
for a while about it, you can tell that in a line. Whereas showing it requires quite a few paragraphs and pages to show that. And then that, of course, slows down the tension. It slows down the pacing of the thing as well. So we keep saying show, don't tell, but there are instances where tell really is way more effective in terms of getting information across without slowing down the pacing. All right, Cece, will you read us the last query letter? Let's do this. So, dear Cece, with your love for morally ambiguous protagonists, I hope you'll consider a few bright sparks. It's a 3POV upmarket contemporary fiction with a strong dose of feminism and dramedy. Think the tone of Leon Moriarty's Nine Perfect Strangers meets the workplace drama of season one of The Morning Show, spiked with a boozy shot of The Wiggles. It's complete at 102,000 words. Aging kids' entertainment trio, the Twinkles, have long since lost their vitality and passion in favor of cynicism, alcoholism, and the odd line of coke snorted backstage. But lone female member Dolores is still incensed that she's the only one being booted out and replaced by a young starlet. Hurt, embarrassed, and out for revenge, Dolores decides to invent some juicy dirt to sell to the tabloids and torpedo the good name of the famous Twinkles show. But she misses the scandal in front of her. Twinkle's scriptwriter Lou's rightful promotion has gone instead to the office creep. Sick of being a pushover, Lou hatches a plan to oust him and take his job. She'll catch him being handsy on camera and use the video to blackmail him into leaving. When the plan backfires and he ends up hospitalized, Lou may have ruined her reputation, any chance of a promotion, and possibly her colleague and best friend Maurice's life. Maurice is furious with herself. Thanks to her impulsive part in Lou's botched scheme, the secret criminal past she's kept from her husband and employers is threatening to become headline news and destroy her marriage and career. Unfortunately, her fight to keep her secret will put her on a collision course with Lou's well-meaning but disastrous attempts to set things right. Dolores' plans for revenge and the Twinkle's biggest show of the year, which may end up being their last. I'm a website creator for a large Australian university and a member of the Australian Crime Writers Association and Romance Writers of Australia. I have degrees in film and journalism and a background in magazine editing, and I've had dozens of feature articles published in a range of Australian lifestyle magazines. I live with a Welshman, two tiny humans, two cats, and a grumpy python. Thanks for your time. Katie. Okay, thank you, Cece. What was your take on that query letter? Okay, this is a great query letter. Absolutely excellent. First paragraph gives me everything I need to know. Title, word count, genre, comps. Confession. I had no idea what the heck the Wiggles even was, but Carly has disabused me of the notion that this would be a problem because apparently they're very big. Everybody knows them, so it's fine. I would just Google them, which is what I did. So if it's very popular, then absolutely keep it. But one of my notes is going to be like, do you want to keep something that's so niche? And it's not niche. So I thought that also, and this is again, ties into this comment, I thought that aging kids entertainment trio, I was like, why are you being vague? Why don't you say whether they're a TV show or like a musical number? And apparently because everybody will understand with the Wiggles comparison. So I want to take a moment to applaud the writer here because writing multi-POV novels is hard enough. Writing multi-POV queries is borderline impossible. And yet this person did it. I know exactly how the story comes together, how these three women's lives intersect. 
I understand their goals in each of the paragraphs. I understand what's at stake. So really, like, I just want to applaud this and say that it's excellent. A perfect, perfect query letter. I couldn't find a single thing that's wrong with it. And also, I want to say that I love the line about the babies, and I did not erase it this time. <laughs> Carly, did you find any nitpicky thing that you could find wrong with the query letter? <laughs> no, no. I'm just laughing in the background of the whole time because I have spent a lot of time watching the Wiggles. I've actually been to a Wiggles concert. I met Captain Feathersword in the hallway with my children. So I have extensive, extensive I Wiggles have no knowledge. Idea what that is. Um, so, so yeah, and, and I think anybody who even has an inkling of what the Wiggles are immediately gets this query, and I think it's very well done. And I think there's so many parents that have thought like I've I've Googled and Wikipedia the Wiggles. I have read the whole backstory of the Wiggles. Like I know their interaction, you know. So I think a lot of parents wonder, you know, what if what if the Wiggles had went a little bit sideways? So, so I actually adore this. <laughs> And can we say how great it is that even someone who does not know what the Wiggles are still love the query line? So, like, it's just excellent, right? Good job to this writer. Captain Feathersword sounds like a euphemism for something naughty, but I'll just <laughs> leave that there. Okay, uh, that's obviously just my break. Right, Cece, will you give us a um, will you give us a summary of what's in those opening pages? All right, so let's get to this, Lou is at work practicing for an interview with her best friend, Maurice, when she notices that everyone is staring at their computer in a very unusual way, like with silence and like staring at it in a weird way. And then Maurice guesses that people got emails about layoffs and she tells Lou, like, check your email, check your email. And so Lou does that and sees a message that links to a Twitter account. But here's the catch. It's a Twitter account in Lou's name, but it's not her account. She doesn't, she's not on Twitter. It's an awful account filled with vicious comments about children, parents, the elderly, really mean things about her coworkers. They're not inaccurate things, but they are really mean things that she would never say out loud. And so it has the same profile picture and the same profile description as her Instagram, which is a legitimate account, but not this Twitter. And she's really nervous. And sure enough, she gets called into her office and she's thinking to herself, well, they'll believe me, right? When I say it's not mine, because it's really not mine. So I want to say this is excellent. If I had gotten this query to the general query email at PS Literary, I would have gotten to the end of these pages and I would have requested a full because I need to read the story. I am curious and the writing is strong. And at the end of the day, we can talk about what makes for a good submission forever, but it's about two things. Am I curious? Is the writing strong? So in this case, it's very much yes and yes. There's a timestamp, which is also great. The voice and the quirkiness is fun. I will say that, you know, the capitalization of responsible and serious felt like a little too much after you capitalized nice person. So I would remove that. Also, I would put the tweets, I would write the tweets in a different font. I wouldn't write them in quotation marks and italics. It's it's too much on the eyes and it's just unnecessary. As she was reading the tweets, I thought to myself, wouldn't she check how many followers this account have? And and she did. So like I felt like I was in her head. One thing that I will say, since we're we're chatting with the writer, not directly, but we are, is I really don't want this to be a plot point where it's like they don't believe her and they fire her because there's a way to check if this Twitter account is hers or not. There are very easy ways to investigate unless someone actually managed to bypass those ways, like mask her IP or whatever. So that would actually be interesting. I just don't want this to be like plot convenient and unbelievable because it's a fairly easy thing to check. And then the other thing is I wonder if the writer has read The Very Nice Box. Because one of the things that I wanted to say is that while I really like Lou, she seems nice and sweet. And that's great. 
but I wanted more layers to her. I wanted more complication. And I would have kept on reading in the hopes of finding that. But since we're offering feedback, if there's any way to bring a little bit more complication and just something other than niceness to these five pages, do it. I was surprised that we started with Louis' point of view because the query letter lists her second. It didn't bother me because it was so well-written and I felt immersed right away. But it's something to also consider if you could maybe tweak your query letter to reflect Lou first. Although, honestly, it's so well-written, I don't want to give you any advice to mess with it. But yeah, overall, excellent. I definitely would have kept on reading. Wonderful, Cece. Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, I'm just very curious about this. So maybe Cece and I will have to co-read this one side by side and, and see what we think. Amazing. All right. Thank you so much to the both of you. Now let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? 
Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the New York Times bestselling author of five other novels in addition to The Magnolia Palace, including The Dollhouse, The Address, The Masterpiece, The Chelsea Girls, and The Lions of Fifth Avenue, which was a Good Morning America book club pick. She lives in New York City and is a graduate of the Columbia Journalism School. It's my pleasure to welcome Fiona Davis. Fiona, welcome to oh, the thank show. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be back. Yeah, absolutely. It's so wonderful to get to chat to you. I have had the pleasure of interviewing you. This is the second time. The first was for a bookstore event about two years ago. And I just love your books. And in fact, when I teach courses on dual POVs and dual timelines, I always tell my students they have to pick up and devour your books because you are the master of that. Thank you so much. That means so much. Well, it's so difficult to do. So that's the thing, you know, because for our listeners, a standard novel is about 80,000 words. If you have one main character, you have way more time in which to get your readers super invested in that character and everything that happens to them. The minute you have two timelines or two POVs, that cuts the amount of time in half, which means as the author, the heavy lifting is that much harder. Could you speak to us about that challenge? Yeah, Fiona? that's such a good question. And and I have to say, you know, I only started using a dual timeline in my first book because I loved reading them. If I had known how hard it is to write one, I would have thought twice, I think. It was just, you know, being innocent and naive. And so, yeah, it is tricky that you you do have to pack in a lot of information. You're basically telling two stories, two novellas within one book. And for me, the key is to really plot it out carefully, outline it, understand what each scene, what each chapter has to accomplish so that you're not wasting any time. So that the two timelines, the journey, they each kind of follow each other in terms of the ups and downs, and they're woven together so that that reflects what's going on in the other timeline. So for the reader, it should feel seamless. It shouldn't feel hard. The jumping back and forth shouldn't be, oh, wait, where am I? I like to make that very easy, very clear so that the two timelines are very different. Yet at the same time, the journey of the character is the same. Yeah. And uh, so Fiona does the date and character name stamping, which Carly and Cece are always saying that they love because it helps orientate the readers. Now, for our listeners, you know, sometimes you can have a dual POV timeline where one thing perhaps happens in the 80s and the next thing happens in the 90s. And you have these two separate characters and then their lives intersect. What Fiona does is really interesting in that, can I ask, are you always first inspired by a building or by a place? Because each of your novels has this, it's a library or it's a station or it's this famous sort of mansion or a museum or whatever at the center of it. And then that is at the center of the novel and everything else is built around that. So is that what comes to you first or not necessarily? Yeah, in, in almost every book, the building has come first. 
And so what I hope is that it almost becomes like another character in the story. And the way I do it is I always have a building kind of in the back of my mind, either a building that readers have talked about a lot at Q&As or something like that. And what I do is I start the research and I look for the surprises. And if there's something there that to me is just quite shocking and also really inspiring, where I could create a fictional story out of it, that's when I know I'm ready to go. So with this particular book, The Magnolia Palace, what we are dealing with here, the book is in 1919, just after the Spanish flu. It's the Frick Mansion. And then that is Lillian's perspective. And then in the 60s, we have Veronica's perspective. And that's obviously when the Frick Mansion has now become the Frick Collection. It's now this museum. So how did researching the Frick Collection lead you to do these two specific characters? Because having a building at the center of a story is one thing. But when you decide who these characters could be, you have literally got endless possibilities as to who they could be. So how do you narrow it down? I started with the older timeline. So I knew 1919 would be a good date to set it because it was the year that Mr. Frick died. And he was this big industrialist and an art collector who built this beautiful mansion. And he lived there with his wife and his adult daughter, Helen Frick, who was in her late 20s at that point. And so I started researching the family and Helen Frick was just such an interesting woman. She was a real mix of contradictions. She wore her hair in a pompadour and bun pretty much her entire life. You know, and, and if her friends bobbed their hair, she would cut them off. She would unfriend them. And <laughs> I, th I thought I was bad for unfriending people over the last two years around COVID-related things. My friends can wear their hair however the hell they damn well please. That's at least what they carry on. <laughs> exactly. And so she had these very strict rules. She hated Germans. She wouldn't allow anyone with a German last name near her or working for her. She was just, you know, odd. Yet at the same time, in 1917, during World War I, she organized a Red Cross unit and went over to France with it to help refugees. And, you know, it was an incredibly dangerous and courageous thing to do. And so she was this interesting mix of contradictions. So I, I knew I had an interesting character there. And then the other character that's in that timeline is Lillian. And that came to me by looking at the door of the entrance to the Frick. And there's a reclining nude carved right above it, the pediment above the door. And I learned that the woman who posed for it was Audrey Munson. And I did a kind of a rabbit hole deep dive into Audrey Munson, who was this celebrated early 1900s artist, muse, and model. Her figure can be found all over Manhattan today at Columbus Circle, of course, the Frick, in front of the Plaza Hotel, in the New York Public Library. She's everywhere, and yet no one knows about her. And her life was a series of ups and downs. She eventually was put into an asylum where she died there in 1996 at the age of 104. And here is this woman who's led this wild life who no one knows her name. And there she is carved into the entrance to the Frick. And so the idea for that timeline really came from wondering what would happen if the crazy free-spirited artist model based on Audrey Munson called Lillian in the book met the prickly Helen Frick. And what if she somehow ended up working for her? I had this kind of weird inspiration. I don't know if you get this where, you know, suddenly the scene comes to you out of nowhere. And it was of Audrey or Lillian standing outside the Frick and looking at her image at the height of a terrible scandal that she was wrapped up in, wondering what's going to happen to her. And I just imagined the door opening and this woman coming out and saying, hurry up, get inside, you're late. And she goes inside and realizes she's been mistaken for the applicant of a private secretary to Helen Frick. And what if she got that job <laughs> And as a way kind of to hide out from the police during this scandal? 
Those are amazing what-if <laughs> scenarios. And when I'm speaking to my creative writing students, I always tell them to pose these kinds of questions to themselves. What if this happened? What if X happened? What if Y happened? Because asking yourself those kinds of prompting questions is a wonderful way to build plot and to build things you know that happen. And it made me think of the scene in Notting Hill where Hugh Grant arrives to see the Julia character and they think he is a, a journalist. And he's just trying to date her and he eventually has to pretend he's from Horse and Hound and asks somebody if there were any horses or hounds in the movie and they say no. And he says, why? And they go, because it was a space odyssey, <laughs> which made me laugh. So I do love those scenarios where people just have to roll with it. But something that fascinates me, Fiona, in terms of your process is Helen was such an interesting character by herself. So what made you not just want to write, you know, from Helen's perspective? Why bring in Lillian into that story as well? Did you want her seen through the eyes of an outsider? Because, you know, when we sit and we decide on characterization and when we decide on who is going to tell a particular story, we need to have very good reasons for picking who we choose. And I'd love to, to hear your thought process there. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's funny, I hadn't considered it. It's, it was just sort of innate to think, all right, the artist model character, her journey will be more dynamic than Helen's. And there's been so many biographies written about Helen Frick and her father. I felt like regurgitating her story wouldn't necessarily be interesting to my readers. And so by creating something that's a mix of fact and fiction, which I was really worried about doing because I normally just work in fictional characters, fictional stories, but here I'm introducing real people. But the Frick family were just so integral to the Frick mansion. I felt like I had to include them in some way. And what I do is I try and make it very clear in the author's note, what is fact? What is fiction? Here's what really happened. Here's what I made up. So the readers know. Yeah. So I just thought the mix of those two women might make for a really fun ride. Yeah. And also, you know, I feel like Helen being seen from the outside by Lillian and everything that we get about Helen is through Lillian's eyes. You know, I think that was why, you know, The Great Gatsby was never written from Gatsby's perspective. It was written from an outsider's perspective because there's this kind of mythologizing that happens of these really wealthy, well-known people. And, you know, the rest of us lowly peasants can't really imagine what it's like to be them, etc. So for me, it's always interesting to see these people by another character whose perception, you know, is doing the filtering of them. Yeah, definitely. Especially because you're talking about a family of three served by a staff of 27 in this Fifth Avenue mansion. They have everything that they could want, but they're haunted by this tragedy that happened many years ago. And so for an outsider to see it, the prism of how she sees the family is much richer than just the daughter thinking about her father, which is limited just because that relationship is, it's smaller, it's more controlled. And so having an outsider come in and really stir up the family in a pretty crazy way with this hunt for a missing pink diamond and betrayal and murder, it makes the story a little more dynamic, I think. And I'm assuming the missing pink diamond is, that's part of historical fact or is that something you made that up? That is something I made up. I call it the Magnolia Diamond in the book. And the book is called the Magnolia Palace because there's these three beautiful magnolia trees out front. And as I come up with the title, I need something that connects both the story and the building. And so once we had the title Magnolia Palace, which fit for the Frick, I made the diamond a pink diamond called the Magnolia Diamond. So we could kind of pull those two together. And so yes, the missing pink diamond is completely made up. <laughs> 
Well, you made it feel so authentic. It was the next thing I was going to look up because I was looking up pictures of Helen and of the Frick collection and the mansion, etc., etc. So that was all awesome. It definitely felt real. When you're writing somebody who really did live, I mean, are there descendants of the Fricks who you have to worry about now in terms of writing about them? Are there any legal worries as a writer that you need to keep in mind when you're doing something like that? Well, as long as the person has passed away. So you see, like books about Hemingway and Hemingway's wife and that I was very inspired by those where they use very famous people as a jumping off point to explore other themes and and that kind of thing. And so I figured I could do that with this book because Helen Frick passed away in the 90s, I believe. There are family members still around. And in fact, one has written a couple amazing biographies about Helen and her father that for me were just the most incredible resources because she had access to arguments within the family that I could recreate in the book, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, you know, if anything, I'm absolutely indebted to the author for writing those books and and inspiring me. Yeah. While I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, Helen, man, you've got some major daddy issues. And I recently read a quote, which boggled the mind. It's like, why do we give women a hard time for having daddy issues? Why don't we give the men a hard time for being shitty dads? Uh, And so I was... I was like, bravo to that man. Once again, you know, the focus is at the wrong place. But this doesn't make me a misogynist to the reader who said I was a misogynist and gave me a bad review on (laughs) Apple. Right. So in terms of elements of craft here. So for our listeners, when books go out on submission to editors, when it's dual POV or dual timelines, they'll often say, oh, I really loved one. One was more compelling than the other. So when you're writing this kind of novel, you need to give each of those main characters very high stakes. You need to know what the stakes are. You need to keep upping them. Each of those stories needs to have an inciting incident that answers the question, why now? Why today? Why does the story begin now? And there needs to be that key event in each story whereby there is no turning back for that character. They've got to see the journey through. They can't just go, eh, I'm getting back into bed. I'm not in the mood for this. So could you tell us about each of your characters and what you saw their stakes were and the inciting incident? Because that sort of starts off each of their chapters. So I don't feel like we're getting into spoiler territory. No, no. There. In fact, yeah. And, and in that way, I can talk about the second timeline, which takes place in the 60s. I'll start with that one. And that's from the point of view of a fashion model named Veronica, who is doing a Vogue photo shoot at the Frick in the 60s. So now it's a museum and it goes terribly wrong. And she gets stuck inside the museum during a three-day blizzard, along with an intern named Joshua. And her story is that she stumbles upon these series of hidden messages that are tucked within the artwork in the museum. And it leads her and Joshua on a scavenger hunt that she hopes might solve all of her financial problems. And so that's the, the recap of that story. And what one thing about writing that one that I wanted to say was having done so many dual timelines, I wanted to give myself a challenge. And so for this one, it's a limited number of characters. It's a limited timeline and a limited location. And so that was really interesting because those constraints for me, I made the story really fun to write if, however, very, very challenging. And so her inciting incident is really doing this Vogue photo shoot where she really needs it to go well. Her career is on the line. Financially, she's in big trouble. And it just goes really, really wrong because she she stands up to the photographer in a way that no one else appreciates. And so then she gets trapped inside. And so she has no turning back because she can't escape the museum. So that was that worked out well for her. (laughs) And for me as a writer, because she's stuck, you know, so how is she going to figure this out? 
And then the earlier timeline, from the point of view of Lillian, the inciting incident is this scandal that she gets wrapped up in that is based on an actual scandal that happened to Audrey Munson in real life. And the inciting incident is really getting the job with Helen Frick and suddenly having to come up with a new persona in many ways and using all her skills as an artist model to become a private secretary to a very wealthy woman. And so that journey for her, it, her, her life is just completely upended and it's a real fish out of water story in that way. Yeah. And just a question. So if you were fine with not fictionalizing Helen, if Helen stayed Helen, why did you want to fictionalize Audrey? Why make her Lillian as opposed to just being Audrey? Because Audrey Munson's life had a really tragic trajectory. And I knew I didn't want my character to have to follow that very tragic, have her go mad, be put in an asylum and died there, you know, in her at 104. I just thought that's just too, I can't do enough with that character if I know she's just going to go mad and be locked away. And because I wasn't staying true to the main points of her life in the way I am true to the main points of Helen's life, I wanted to rename her and make her my own in many ways because she needed to achieve certain things in order to make the story work. Right. And it gives you so much more creative freedom. And yes, you know, I didn't notice that about your other novels. They spanned longer periods of time, whereas these were much shorter periods of time. So there is so much more you need to make compelling in a very short period of time. So that, yeah, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. But now that you mention it, in terms of your story beats, because like you said, it's kind of two novellas that are running concurrently. But you need the ebb and flow of the stories to kind of mirror each other in a way. So you've said that you plot. So you clearly are not a pantser. So when you sit and plot each of those stories, are there certain like action beats or story beats that you are thinking about as you plan each of their trajectories? You bet. Yeah. And I, I follow kind of a W shape in terms of their journeys. And so they start out kind of up here in one place and something goes really wrong. Things get worse and worse and you're down here. And then they kind of figure out how to get over it and work their way back up. And things seem like they're going really, really well. And then the rug gets pulled out from under them and they slide back down. So it's even worse than it was before. And again, they have to pull within, deep within their own character in order to solve the problem and finish up, hopefully, where things are fine and everything is understood and reconciled. And so each timeline, right. I kind of have post-it notes and I write each chapter, a short description on the post-it note, and they're different colors for each timeline. And then I literally put them on the wall and figure out what needs to go where and which one should come first, what should come next. And so, like I said, they mirror each other going up, down, and up. And I think that helps in, for the reader because it, it is a roller coaster. And at least both trajectories are pretty much following each other. So if one character in 1960 is in a really dark place, that's probably the same with the other character. For our listeners, you know, if you are familiar with Jessica Brody, Saves the Cat, writes a novel, there's these things called the false victories and the false defeats in terms of Act 2. And this is something that Fiona's talking about now. You know, they kind of pull themselves out of it, feel like they are fine, but then that's kind of a false victory because then, boom, something else happens. And it's hard enough to do with one character and one storyline. To do that with two in a novel is incredibly Difficult. That's why I say if you're doing it, read Fiona's books. Now, when it comes to genre, Fiona, you know, some of your other books have had a historical narrative in terms of the timeline. 
and then others are like so, sort of more modern day. This is very clearly both are historical fiction. You know, 1916 and 1960, both definitely historical fiction. How does your publisher market you and how did you market yourself when you came out with your first novel? Did you market yourself as a historical fiction writer, as a woman's fiction writer? Because I feel like you slot between those two different genres. And is that a good thing or has that been more difficult for you? You know, I just wrote that first book. I wrote the book that I wanted to read. And I like books that have a mystery in them. I like dual timelines. And that one was set in modern day and then in the 1950s, just because, you know, I wanted to have a journalist uncovering something that happened in the 1950s. And so that really happened just because that's the way I wanted to read that book if I were a reader. And then from there, it was a matter of choosing different decades so that I wasn't working in the same one for every book. And so, for example, the 60s, I just haven't worked in them yet. And so I thought that would be fun. And my publisher has been amazing. I think because each book is set around an iconic New York City building, that's enough to ground people. And so they understand what they're getting with each book, that it's something around a building, but then stories that are completely different book to book, timelines that are completely different book to book. And my publisher has been great with it. You know, I can basically say to them, all right, I'm going to write a book about this place set here. And they say, yeah, go to it, which is so much. It's just great. It's an incredible amount of freedom. I don't have to write a huge proposal for each book. I just kind of focus on a building and see what happens. Yeah. And like you said, there's that element of mystery as well, you know, so it's like historical fiction, women's fiction, and like a mystery kind of component to it as well. So a whole bunch of things thrown in. In terms of your career as a writer, at what point do you feel like you reached a level of success? Were you one of those lucky authors that with your debut novel, you already had enormous success or was it more of a sort of marathon for you to get to that point? The, the debut novel did surprisingly well for a debut novel. I mean, where no one knows who you are or what you do. For some reason, The Dollhouse did really well, which it, it did well. And my publisher jumped on that. And so they sent me out for a book tour for the paperback release, which that just doesn't really happen often. And so I think because they put so much behind it early on, it gave me a really good lift. And the second book did even better than the first, which is, again, rare. Usually, if one book's been a breakout, the next one tends to not get that much attention. And it, it is a team effort. And the marketing team and the publicity team have been incredible at making sure each book builds and builds and builds and making sure the covers are cohesive, making sure that I, I have enough time to write. It's just been incredible. And I, without that, and also a really good agent who knows how to get the job done, I don't think I would have been where I am. The book world is a tricky one. And without that heft, it, it might have been a different story. Yeah, amazing to be able to avoid that sophomore slump, which is what they call what happens to novelists with their second book. Like some editors are just like, write your damn second book, get it <laughs> over with so we can get to the third if you're lucky to get that far. So Fiona, what a joy to get to chat to you. For our listeners, we're putting the Magnolia Palace on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you buy it through there, you help support the podcast, you support the author, and you support an independent bookstore, which we are all for on the podcast. And we hope to have you back with your next book, Fiona. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I love answering these kind of questions. I think it's so helpful. And that's why I listen to your podcast all the time, because I'm so curious to know what other authors, what their process is. So thank you so much for having me on and for having people share these stories. I think it's so important for writers and readers. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, 
please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. 
you get lifetime access for the entire six module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.